All right, good evening, everyone. So the attrition has already begun. Well, I know there's, I know, yeah, well, I, no one's on time. What else is new? Um, I know there are a number of people who are sick tonight uh, as well. So, but we'll probably have people trickling in uh, over the next couple minutes. I uh, want to begin tonight with a brief reading from Scripture, and then we'll pray, and we'll start talking. This is from the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 23. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? Let's pray. Lord, we count it a privilege to be among those entrusted with your word. With that privilege comes the tremendous responsibility of of speaking it and studying it and ministering it to others in truth and faithfully. So help us as we continue our study tonight of how to rightly handle the word of truth. Will you help us? us to understand the things you have written, help us to learn how to, how to interpret it well, that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, welcome back. I, uh, I don't have my iPad tonight. Wasn't able to fix that. The good news is that means I won't be running back here all the time, except for this one time, because I forgot my clicker. So tonight we're just with regular old PowerPoint. I hope that doesn't disappoint you too much. It's disappointed me immensely, but I'm working on getting the iPad to work. Maybe in a couple weeks we'll get it to work, I hope. So, uh, so you guys had some, some work that you did in the, in the past couple weeks. I had a couple of you come up to me and, and say, wow, that was, that was a lot. It was challenging. Uh, and we're going to spend the first part of our time together tonight talking about the work that you did. Um, so if you want to flip open in your workbook to page, I think it's 27... 
Remember, we talked last week about we, as we begin to think about studying the Bible, we need to start by doing some background information, some background research on what's, what's going on in the book, who's, who's writing it, who's the audience, what's going on uh, to give us the, the context. We're going to talk more about that tonight, um, but uh, we want to start by, by talking through what did we find just by reading the book of Philippians over and over again. What were we able to draw out to learn about the background of that, of that book? Uh, I've heard it explained like this before in, in books, especially like, like uh, the letters of the New Testament. It's like you are listening to one end of a phone conversation. And you're trying to piece together what's being said on the other end. So uh, the apostles and the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, they, for the most part, didn't give us uh, summaries of what they were doing in each of the books. Occasionally they, they tell us, well, this is who's writing it and this is why they're writing it and so forth. But most of the time we are, we're left to look at kind of the clues in the books to see what's, what's going on. So um, we're going to, in the first hour or so tonight, we're going to bounce back and forth between you guys talking at your tables and then us talking as a large group about uh, what you found in the various aspects of this, this first assignment uh, I wanted to show you, just, just to prove to you that I'm not making you do work, that I'm not doing, these, these are the first couple of sheets from my study of Philippians. Now, I show you that not so that you think that you have to make it look like this. That's not what I'm doing. But I find it to be really helpful and I love that they printed it in the book, uh, the whole book of Philippians, just being able to, to draw lines, to underline. I mean, I'm very visual like that, so I like doing that kind of stuff. I find it extraordinarily hard to just read and then just uh, kind of remember everything. I, 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 need to, I need to mark it up, and so that's how I end up remembering things. So anyway, that's free. You can go look at that in more detail if you want later. Don't pay attention to anything that's written. I mean, this is literally just my scribbles. All this stuff could be wrong. So don't actually read it. This is more for a visual effect. All right. So we're going to do this in kind of five, five stages. You had, there's five parts of the, of the homework, and so we're going to talk about it in those five stages. So the first thing I want you all to talk about at your tables is discuss your observations from the book of Philippians about the author or authors. What do we learn from the book of Philippians about the authors? And as you're talking, remember, we're drawing things out of the text. So everything you say should be able to be supported by something in the book of Philippians. Now, we're going to talk later tonight about using outside sources, sources outside the book itself and in, in the rest of Scripture, sources outside of Scripture to help help us understand those things. But right now, first thing, we want to stick just with the Scripture and say, what does the book of Philippians say about the author? What do we learn from that? So I want you to take about five minutes, talk at your tables about that, and then we'll come back together and uh, see what we come up with as a large group. All right. So... What, uh, what do we learn 
We're only on question one right now. I hope you didn't try to do all of them. If, if you did, it's only because you weren't listening. Clearly. Or you're rebellious. That, well, you got to go with the heart. What's, what's our idolatrous, rebellious heart? So what do we learn from the book of Philippians about the author? Okay, those are all real good general kind of summary statements. So, but show me the text. Where is it in the text? Where do we learn about that in the text specifically? Yeah, Jeff. He was circumcised on the day. Okay, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Yeah. Now, he was very specific. Now, as we, as we go, there's a reason for that. There's a reason he brings that up. He's not just saying, hey, my name's Paul. Uh, nice to meet you. You know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. There's a reason for that. So we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. So, okay, he's not, he's not bitter about his imprisonment. Okay. He's content in every situation. Paul's in prison again. Okay, so then we have to ask, well, what does that, what does that mean? So it, he's in prison more than once? Okay. All right, how do you know that from the book of Philippians? See, no, you're cheating. No, and obviously, obviously we're all going to come, when we study a book of the Bible, we're probably going to come with understandings about other books of the Bible and about kind of the narrative of biblical history so that we know, okay, Paul's in prison more than once. And so, but then we have to ask a question, and this, this is moving from observation to interpretation. We observe Paul's in prison. We know as we look at kind of the historical context, he's in prison more than once. So which imprisonment is this? And that might give us some indications of other things that are going on. He's in prison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he has a relationship with the Philippians. Now, quit stepping ahead. That's number three. But, that, but that's part of what we learn from about the author, because he, ha- he has a pre-existing relationship with the people. That's not always the case. Um, there's, there's letters that Paul writes where he says, I've never seen you before. Um, so so this, is, this is a different one. Is there, yeah. And he was a man of prayer. Okay. Yep. So where do we see that in the text? Yeah, so he, he starts by praying for them. Okay, yeah, so the Philippians, he had received some kind of gift from the Philippians at some point. We don't know exactly what that, what that looks like, but there's, there's something about their relationship there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, okay, interesting. And, and that word, 
Yeah, so there, there's, a, there's an orientation in his thought towards what's coming, right? This idea of, of, of heaven and his confidence being there, and he mentions that a couple different times. Yeah, Daryl. Mm -hmm. with Christ, but for your sakes, I desire to live. We what benefit to you. There's a he's torn between two ways. Of yep. Yeah. There's there's something going on, and and we can draw inferences from the text about what's going on uh, that is causing him to think. Well, I might I might die, but I might live, and I don't know which one I want the most. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so, so in chapter 3, Paul goes on this, this, uh, this soliloquy about his life and about who he was, especially who he was before he came to know Jesus. Now, as we go through the book, like I said with, with Jeff, because that's in the same, the same place as where he talks about being circumcised on the eighth day, there's a real specific reason he's talking about that. Uh, that's not just something he's introducing uh, for, no, for no purpose. Um, and so, and he's not just doing it so that the Philippians will get to know him better. There's a real specific reason why he's introducing it. So, but, but these are some of the questions that we have to ask. Why would Paul choose to share that information in that place? So these are some of the questions that we kind of we jot down and we say, as we study the book, we want to we think about that question as we go. Okay, yeah, Jeff. Yeah, so he's gonna so he's gonna send Timothy to Philippi. Uh, he wants to go also, so he's he's thinking, uh, you know, if I get released, I'll come to you. But I'm gonna send Timothy to you now. So uh, what? One more thing, and then we're gonna move on. And everybody, you'll all get a chance to talk if you want to talk later. Don't worry. Um, how many authors are there? Two. One, one. Tim, Paul, and Tim, what does it say? Well, that's a really good observation. So Paul and Timothy are the senders of the letter, but through the rest of the letter, almost everything is in the first person. It's I this, I this, I this. Now, how do you know that it's Paul that's the author and not Timothy? Because what? Because he's sending Timothy, right. So, but, but these are good observations for us to make. So you can see from the text that we can know that Paul's the primary author. He's the one that's writing this. Um, and uh, Timothy uh, is, uh, is there supporting Paul. Um, was he a scribe? Well, it's possible, but it actually doesn't say that. So we don't, we don't know that. There are other letters that Paul writes where we know the name of the scribe who's writing it. I, I did this with somebody this week. I don't remember if it was Tom or Brent. Um, uh, who wrote the book of Romans? Okay, Paul. Okay, that's the right answer. Who actually, who actually wrote the book of Romans with their hand? Hmm? Okay, that's the, that's the Sunday school answer the Holy Spirit. 
you go into Romans 16, you'll see at the very end of the book, there's, a, there's one verse, I don't remember which verse off the top of my head, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this book, send my greetings. Now, it's not that he's the one that came up with all this stuff, but he's the one that actually put pen to paper. Yeah. So, anyway, that's just, if you want to, uh, if you want to have fun with somebody and uh, give them a trick question, that one's free. All right. So remember, what we're doing right now is just, this is an initial survey of a book. If we're going to go study a book of the Bible, we want to get a survey of what's going on. It's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. This is the part where you dump all the pieces out on the table, and then you have to turn them over one by one. It's before you even start putting it together. Uh, this is the stuff that we have to do just to kind of get the lay of the land uh, so that we are prepared to study a book of the Bible as we go through. So uh, next, take a couple minutes talking to your tables about number two. What do we learn from the book of Philippians about the recipients, about the people who are getting, who, who, the, who the, the letter is written to? What do we learn about them? Let's take a few minutes and, and talk about that. Okay. So what do we learn from the book of Philippians about the recipients of this letter. What do we learn? Yeah. Okay. They were generous in supporting him in his ministry. Where do we see that? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So we learned they were generous. We learned that there's something unique about the church in Philippi, that they were one of the only churches that had, that had entered into supporting him in his ministry. Say it again. Yeah, so it says in chapter 1, verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so then we ask our, have to ask ourselves a question, well, what's the first day? What's Paul talking about there? Now, we don't have an answer to that yet, but it's, a, it's an interpretive question. It's, it's something that, okay, we made an observation. Uh, Paul says he has this relationship with the Philippians and that, that they've had a, a partnership with, with him in the gospel from the first day. But what's the first day? What does partnership in the gospel mean? Because I'll tell you that, and this is, I'm cheating because I know this. So I don't expect you to get, to get that. Um, but the, uh, the word participation, it's the word koinonia, be fellowship, communion, sharing. So he uses that word a lot in a lot of other places. So what does he mean by it here? So now I'm not telling you the answer because we'll have to think about that as we go and we actually study that portion of the text, but it's something for us to keep in mind. Yes, Scott? No questions. I'm just kidding. Okay. 
Right. Is that who it's the letter's being addressed to, though? Okay. That might be something that Paul is aiming at talking about. It might be part of his purpose. Um, but he's not writing it to them, right? He is warning against them. But don't skip ahead. We're not there yet. Yeah, so chapter 4, he, he starts naming people by name, people in the church. Uh, so it seemed to indicate that he at least knows some of the people that are there. Right? What else? Yeah, that's okay. Is it possible that he wrote it for others, including people like us, than just the Philippians? Did, did the letter ever arrive to the Philippians? <laughs> did they ever get it? Well, that's a good question. I can't tell you the answer from that. I'm going to assume yes, but I can't tell you that from the book. Sorry, say it again. Were the oh, were the letters were they like sealed, or were they open along the way? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are those are good questions. Now that's those are some of the questions that we may need to think about as we think about historical context. Those might be things that we can't tell from the letter itself. They're good questions to ask. Um, so the first question was, see, you guessed too many questions. I can't remember what they were. Uh, what was the first question? Before that one. Oh, who, yeah, the recipients. So, of course, we would say, because of our, our doctrine of Scripture, um, that even if Paul only intended this to go to the Philippians, the Holy Spirit intended it to go to the whole church. Right, which is why it's in our Bibles. So there's my cop-out answer for that. Um, but, uh, but there is a sense in which, and we see this very, very early in, in, the, in the history of the church, that uh, the churches, as they received these letters, understood that it was more than just for them. Uh, you actually see in the book of Ephesians, you see an example of this. At the end of Ephesians... Paul says, um, re, uh, how does he say? read the letter uh, to the Laodiceans and make sure they read this letter in their church. Something along those lines. I've just butchered that. I'll get you the actual, the actual quote. Uh, or maybe it's in Colossians. But Ephesians and Colossians are, are sister letters. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, so it's Colossians. Colossians 4, 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the churches in her house, and when this letter is read among you, 
have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And so Paul's saying, I, I wrote this to the, the, the Laodiceans, but I want you to read it too. And actually the letter that I wrote to you, I want to make sure they read it too. So early in, even within uh, the canon of Scripture itself, we see that the letters that Paul wrote, at least some of them were intended for more than just the people they were addressed to. So, but for the, for the sake of our study, the church in Philippi are the main addressees. Yeah, Mike. Okay. Possibly. Maybe there are people who are not within the church that are just hanging around, or it could be people within the church. No. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, there, it, it does appear, and, and this is more piecing together things from the early history of the church, that these kind of things were read in the, in the public worship gatherings. Say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. All right, everybody listen up. Um, very early on, we talked about this a little bit last week, there was a recognition that stuff that Paul was writing and others were writing was, uh, was recognized to be Scripture, and so when Paul tells Timothy to give himself to the public reading of Scripture, uh, early, early in the history of the church, even before the close of the New Testament canon, that becomes a practice uh, in the church. So, but also remember that um, it's probably not a venue like this. I mean, we're probably talking about house churches, so we're, they're, they're pretty small. Yeah, Dean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that tells us something about Paul. So this tells us something about Paul's, maybe Paul's imprisonment or where Paul's at. So he said, well, Paul's in prison. Well, then we can start to piece together, well, where's Paul in prison? Well, he mentions the imperial guard. Uh, he mentions Caesar's household uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the book. So um, I'll let you draw your own conjecture from that as to where Paul might be in prison. So one, one more, and then we're going to move on. Epaphroditus. Mm, yeah, that they, they provided, they made up what was lacking. Let's see if I can find that. Um, yeah, I have received, this is uh, 418, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Oh, here are this, okay, 230.
uh, oh, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. All right, so at this point, all we can say is, what does that mean? What was deficient? What was that? So, again, this is as uh, if, I were, if I were doing a, an exegetical study of Philippians, I would be uh, making note of these questions as they came up, saying, okay, when I reach that part of the text, when I'm studying it, these are questions I want to answer. Now, by the time I get there, I might have a good idea of what the answer is, or I might realize that the question really doesn't, you know, isn't relevant anymore. Uh, but those are things that we, at this point, as we're just making some initial observations about the book as a whole, we say, okay, that's something we got to think about. What is that? Um, so, okay. Take the next couple minutes, and um, for the sake of time, I want to skip the relationship between uh, Paul and the Philippians. Um, they had one. <laughs> Surprise. Um, so, but as we talk, we see, okay, they sent Epaphroditus. Uh, so there's that kind of relationship. They entered into a relationship of giving with him. They've been with him from the first day until now in terms of their participation in the gospel. So there's a history there. We'll talk more about what that looks like a little bit later on. Fine, Brant. Uh, oh. <laughs> That's, that's a relationship, yeah. but it's also driving stuff. It's, it's more of a technical Yeah. So Brent, Brent's question is, uh, if you didn't hear it, is when we start making observations about the recipients, when does that start to bleed into observations about the relationship between the recipients? And the, and the answer is it'll, it'll happen really quickly, um, as you've, you've noted. And if you're OCD like me, that might bother you. Because it's not, it's not everything's going to be in these nice, nice, neat little compartmentalized things. But really the idea of this is to help you to, to think kind of step by step as you read through a book. Here's the stuff that I need to be drawing out. And so I wouldn't expect necessarily in your notebook for you to have all these different lines. About, okay, here's relationship. Here's this. Here's that. Um, but it's more so... Uh, a way to help you structure the way you're thinking as you read as you read through the book. So don't get super caught up on well that doesn't count for this because that's talking about the relationship and it's not just about them. And um, the other thing to note with some of this stuff is depending on the book that you're studying, this is going to be easier or harder, and actually might be more or less important. Okay, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the fact that Paul wrote this book and there's things going on in Paul's life that are described in the book and have relevance to the way uh, that, that Paul's writing and why he's writing and all that stuff, that's, that makes it really important. So a book uh, like one of Paul's letters or the other letters of the New Testament, author, recipient, that's going to be more important because it's going to be really relevant to the meaning of the book. Who wrote 1 Samuel? It's a little bit of a trick question. It never says. I'll tell you, it wasn't Samuel because he dies real early in 1 Samuel. And then there's a 2 Samuel. 
Samuel probably didn't write those books. So, but whoever wrote those books uh, was writing this history of Israel, and it really doesn't matter who wrote it because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter if Samuel wrote it or not. Uh, if you want to argue with me that Samuel wrote the book, um, feel free to come up and argue with me after that. Um, but if there's really no uh, competition. Samuel did not write those books. Uh, so sometimes the, let, the, uh, the book is named the way we know it. The book is named for who wrote it. Sometimes it's named for who it's about. Sometimes it's named like Philippians for who received it. Remember, the names of the books aren't inspired. We just kind of made those up as we went along. Or just, just the text is inspired. Okay. Uh, so, take a couple minutes, talk about the occasion. Uh, what prompted Paul to write this letter? What, what was the situation that he was in uh, that was causing him to write this letter? What can you see from the text that might that might indicate that. Take a few minutes and we'll talk about it. Okay, for the sake of time, I'm going to stop you. We do have some more stuff to get to tonight. So, uh, so what, uh, what do we learn from the text about what might be the, the occasion for Paul writing? What's the situation... Uh, in, uh, in Paul's life or, or the historical situation that is leading him to write this book? Yeah. Okay. He's in prison. He might not get a chance to write another letter. Right? So where do we see that maybe implied? Right, he talks about how to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't know which one I'm going to choose. Um, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. Um, so he's, he ends up being convinced that he's going to be released, but, but he's like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. He's hunching his bets. What else? What, what, what else is going on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's gotten some news from Philippi because he knows about things that are happening there. Uh, he's telling them, watch out for these people. At the, at the end of the letter in uh, chapter 4, he tells two people in particular that they need to start getting along, um, which means he knows something about what's going on. Um, he's in prison. How would he know that? Epaphroditus. Everybody together now. Epaphroditus. That's a tough one. It's not as tough as some of the ones in the Old Testament, like Master Shaller Hashbaz or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. He's talking about 
Sure. You said in his, his career mm-hmm. Right. So there's so part of the historical situation is Epaphroditus has come. Uh, chapter two calls him your messenger and minister to my need. So he's he's brought some kind of news from Philippi. This is how Paul knows what's going on there at the time, um, and uh, and he's a minister to Paul's need. So he's brought this gift. Uh, we see that in chapter four as well that that Epaphroditus b- received the gift from the Philippians. Um, it actually tells us something about the kind of prison that Paul was in. He's apparently able to receive gifts and visitors and have people hanging out with him and stuff like that. It actually sounds it's like Danbury Minimum Security Prison. Um, they, yeah, they, have, they, have, they, they don't seem to have too many, too many rules, though, so, so maybe under house arrest. That might give us a, an insight into when this is happening in the life of Paul. Um, so, and he wants to send Epaphroditus back. So, and it's quite possible that Epaphroditus is the one who carried this letter. He carried it back to Philip. I said, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. I want you to know, he, he was sick and he almost died, but he's alive and I'm sending him back to you. I'll, Timothy's going to come when he gets a chance. I want to come. So, there's some of that. And yeah, Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's... Yep, I think that's true. So the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul to bring this gift to tell him, here's what's going on. And uh, while he was there, got sick, almost died, uh, and, uh, but then he didn't, and Paul wants to send him, to send him back now. Um, so, uh, yeah, Brett, sorry, you're, up, you're back there like waving your hand like crazy. Which verse 22? Chapter 4. Uh, is it a tongue-in-cheek joke? Maybe. So, yeah, I mean, I guess... Maybe, but pro- probably the reference to Caesar's household is not so much Caesar and his family as much as it is the people who are a part of this, this machine that runs like the palace and all of this stuff, many of whom might have been believers because Paul just won't shut up about Jesus. Yeah, the whole, yeah everybody in the Imperial Guard knows about, knows about this. So. Yeah. That's that's quite possible. Yeah, yeah, Maddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's quite possible too. Now, you're, this is good lead-in. This is perfect. This is where we're going to stop because this is perfect lead-in because. That is something that may be reflective of the historical context of the city of Philippi. Something going on in the city of Philippi at the time that you're not going to learn just by reading this, but you'll learn by doing some research outside of it to learn, well, 
What was the city of Philippi? What was going on there? Could give you some more insight into, into what some of that might mean. So that's possible, but we'll get there. So, okay. Thank you for all your hard work. There'll be more. Oh, we got, okay. One more. Last, this is really the last one. Two eleven. Oh, three eleven. I'll make you a deal. I'll have a comment for it when we get there in the study. So this is because right now we're just getting a big picture of what's going on in the book. We're going to be left with a lot of questions, which is why we study. We study the whole book. Now we're going to end up going piece by piece through the book uh, and uh, trying to put it all together. So I'm going to punt that, but it's not on pur- it is on purpose, but we can talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Okay, so we've only made it through one slide so far. It's been an hour. Who can remind me or remind everybody, last week we, we, did, uh, we talked about kind of the basic... Uh, method of study, when we go to study a, a text of scripture, we use the, the acronym OICA, O-I-C-A. Who remembers what that means? Yeah. Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. Okay, now who can remember the questions that I put with that to help you remember what those things mean? Observation is... What does it say? Interpretation is? What does it mean? We're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. Correlation is? How does it fit? How does it fit with the rest of Scripture? How does it fit with, with Christian theology? And then application? Why does it matter? Good. I'm impressed. Although, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe you weren't all looking at your notes right now. I'm going to... I'm going to choose to believe that. So, again, we're talking about how do we study a book of the Bible, and and before we actually get into studying it piece by piece, we're doing all of this kind of prep work uh, in advance. Uh, And so... We take time, we go through the book, we familiarize ourselves with it, we read it over and over again, we start making notes about things we observe about the author and, and the purpose of the book and, and why all this, why it was written and all this. Uh, and it's important then to remember as we continue to do background work that's going to kind of lay the, the foundation as we go forward in studying the book, it's really important to remember historical context. We've been talking about it a little bit. What you did this past week is, is some historical context work. Who wrote it? Who they write it to? When did they write it? Why did they write it? That kind of stuff. It's important to remember that the Bible, this is uh, what your workbook says on page 32, the Bible was written thousands of years ago in a different culture and language. And we need to remember this as we attempt to discern the author's meaning. Uh, the, the book Dig Deeper says this on page 24. The Bible was written by particular people at a particular time in a particular place for a particular reason. 
Now this is important because as we, as we think through historical context, we remember that this is not just something that somebody made up as they were sitting down uh, thinking, I'm going to make up a religion and I'm going to start writing all of these texts and things like that. No, this is stuff that, that actually happened. And, and so um, when we think about historical context, as we're studying a book of the Bible, we want to get as full a picture as we can about what was going on at the time, about, uh, about what, as the recipients would have gotten this book, how would they have understood it based on their culture, their understanding of, of history, all of these things. How would, how would the original readers uh, have, have understood it? We're going we're gonna to talk about this more in a, in a second. Um, but there are, there are three types, as we think about historical context, there are three types of historical context that we're that we're, we need to be concerned with when we study a book of the Bible. Uh, this is not in your book, so you can, you can take notes on this if you want, but again, I'm going to post all this online so you'll have access to it. The first is geopolitical. What's the geopolitical context? Here's a big word that means what's the historical, political, and geographical uh, events reflected within a portion of Scripture? Uh, what's, what's going on in the world? So for, for the book of Philippians, something like this would be, what, what do we know about the city of Philippi? Right? The, you, you can go to the ruins of Philippi. Right? There's stuff written in other so, ancient sources about the city of Philippi. There's things we know about it. Um, so what do we learn about the city of Philippi? What was, what was going on there? The second is cultural. Remember, the Bible is written to very different cultures, and so we must learn the customs and manners of biblical cultures, including their religious practices and and expectations. Both those quotes are from your optional reading book, Inductive Bible Study. Sometimes we learn things about the geopolitical and the cultural context from Scripture. Uh, So, probably a text most of you are very familiar with, Luke chapter 2. It's the one we read at Christmas every year. Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem. Why? Just, there's a census, right? It's how the... Chapter starts, a decree in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world was to be taxed. And so everybody had to go to their hometown. There was a census because Caesar wanted more money. It's like, if I know how many people I have, I know how much money I can expect. Um, and so right there we have, we have okay, here's, the, here's a geopolitical context. Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because they were required to by law. The Romans were making everybody do it. Now, there's things that we don't learn from there, like, who's Caesar Augustus? Why is he taking a census? Um, Why do Mary and Joseph care what Caesar Augustus has to say? They live in Judea. Now, we know some of this stuff just because of our familiarity with world history and and things like this, but these are are questions we we need to think about when we interpret a text. With culture... Um, most cultural norms in the Bible are just kind of assumed by the authors, 
right? So I, I think I gave you this example last week. Um, I'll give it again. When I moved to Lancaster, everybody eats pork and sauerkraut for New Year's, right? We were talking about this. Now, when I moved there, everybody looked at me cross-eyed because I had no idea what they were talking about. They just assumed, like, well, this is what you do. They didn't have to tell me until they realized I had no idea what they were talking about. And so the same is the case for the biblical authors. Most of the time, there is just assuming familiarity with these cultural norms, things uh, like, again, if you go into Matthew 1 and you're looking at the, the story of Mary and Joseph, this idea that Mary and Joseph were, uh, were betrothed and, like, what does that mean? Is it the same as engagement? Well, not quite. There's, there's some differences there. So, but they don't spend time telling us about that. They just kind of say, well, they were betrothed. Subtext, you all know what that means. But we don't because we live 2,000 years later in America where everything's different. Not everything. And so we have to do some work as we think about uh, the historical context of any given passage of Scripture, understanding is there something cultural here that we maybe we don't understand that's different. Uh, there are some exceptions places in Scripture where the writers do tell us uh, about something uh, cultural uh, that, uh, that maybe we wouldn't necessarily understand, and that may have something to do with who the, the book was intended for. So an example uh, that, I, that I was thinking of earlier is in John chapter 4, you have Jesus going to meet the woman at the well, right? And, and Jesus uh, comes up and and, and asks her for a drink, and she's like, how are you asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And then John, the author, adds this little parenthetical statement. He says, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, if the Gospel of John was written to Jewish people, specifically, they wouldn't have needed to say that. Well, the Jews knew that. If he was writing it to Gentiles, who maybe we're not familiar with that, he needs to put that in. He's like, listen, let me explain it to you. You see it over and over again in the Gospel of John. He translates Hebrew terms. He's telling them about Hebrew, uh, different Hebrew things that are going on. So we get an idea that uh, John was not writing primarily to Jewish people who understood these things. So those are some places where we, we might see the author giving us some of that cultural information, uh, but sometimes we're not going to get it just from Scripture, so we're going to need to do some more background, background research. And then, uh, lastly, situational, the situational historical context. This is what we've kind of been talking about already. What was actually going on with the author, with the recipients, with the people uh, that the book was written to, written about? What was going on at that time that was, uh, that was leading this Scripture to be written? What's going to help us understand uh, what's what's going on? A part of the reason coming to understand the historical context of a book of scripture or a passage of scripture because it grounds us in the historical reality of the text. 
It reminds us that these are not just philosophical musings, that these are things that were written by real people for real people. And it reminds us that, and this is so important, that as we think about asking the question, what does it mean, this, this interpretive question, what does the text mean? Is it the one meaning of the text? Remember we talked about this last week. Every text has one meaning. And that that one meaning is determined by the text's author. Now, this might seem obvious, but it's not. Particularly in our culture, where it's not necessarily assumed. And so, uh, your, your uh, study guide talks about this. On page 32, right underneath... That box that says three principles for sound interpretation, historical interpretation, that's what we've been talking about, historical context. It says, as this principle suggests, one of the key concepts of this course is authorial intent. What we mean by this is that a text's meaning is determined by what the author of that text intended to communicate. Although seemingly basic, it's imperative that we start our study of the Bible by affirming this point, especially since there are many contemporary challenges to this concept. So, I want you to answer this question. What would be some of the potential problems if we said that the meaning of a text is found in what the reader says it is, not what the author says it is? You have different interpretations? Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 effectively it's a type of postmodernism where truth is relative. There's no there's no objective truth. It's just whatever you want it to be. Um and so this is in some circles it's it's called reader response theory. It's the it's the idea uh, that is uh, portrayed by, by some people in our, in our culture and, and other cultures uh, that says, well, meaning and truth is in the eye of the beholder. It's, it means what I think it means, and it can mean what you think it means at the same time, and that's fine. Because it doesn't really mean anything, it's just what it means for me and what it means for you. So you can have your truth and and I can have my truth, and everybody can have their truth. And well, that works unless there is an author who actually had a meaning that they were trying to communicate. Um, take this as an example. Uh, I have two sons, almost four and almost two. I know, that big. That, it's going to be a giant. Be playing for the Sixers soon. More like this. If I ask my sons to clean up their toys, and they, well, really, the, the oldest one's the only one who can really respond like this at this point, responds by making an even bigger mess. This is just conjecture, not that this ever happens. <laughs> Makes a bigger mess, and I 
I said, well, what did I ask you to do? And he says, well, you, know, you said to clean up your toys, but I mean, to me, that just meant it make a bigger mess. And I say, well, that's very postmodern of you. <laughs> but what I said is what I meant. And so it really doesn't matter what you thought I meant, because that's not what I meant. You don't get to decide what I mean I do. Well, it's the same thing with biblical interpretation. Our, our goal is to discover what did the author intend the text to mean, not what we want the author to mean, or what we decide the author is going to mean. Um, on page 33 of your study guide, uh, you have a good kind of statement of this. This is from the, the Bethlehem College and Seminary Statement of Faith, uh, and they have a, an extended section about uh, biblical interpretation. It says, we believe, this is uh, 1.3, we believe God's intentions are revealed through the intentions of inspired human authors, even when the author's intention was to express divine meaning which they were not fully aware of, as, for example, in the case of some Old Testament prophecies. Thus, the meaning of biblical texts is a fixed historical reality rooted in the historical, unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. However, while meaning does not change, the application of that meaning may change in various situations. Nevertheless, it is not legitimate to infer a meaning from a biblical text that is not demonstrably carried by the words which God inspired. Therefore, the process of discovering the intention of God in the Bible, which is its fullest meaning, is a humble, careful effort to find in the language of Scripture what human authors intended to communicate. Big picture of that. Our job when we interpret Scripture is to try to understand what the original authors of Scripture meant, and because the authors of Scripture, as we talked about last week, are carried along by the Holy Spirit, what God means in Scripture. Now, to try to bring this home and, and, and help you think through what are some questions that we need to be thinking about uh, as we look at the author's meaning, right? This his, these historical people who actually wrote, who actually intended to write something and have it mean something. Uh, we're going to do a little, a little exercise. I hope this helps. Uh, I've run it by a couple people and they thought it was good, so you're going to as well. You, you guys ever read this poem before? Watching it, uh, Robin Williams quote it in Dead Poet Society doesn't count. Right. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain, our fearful trip is done. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes, the steady keel, the vessel grim and daring. But oh, heart, 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 oh, the bleeding drops of red where on the deck my captain lies, fallen cold and dead. So what's this mean? 
And don't believe what your junior year poetry teacher told you. It doesn't mean whatever emotions it brings up. I will tell you, I promise you, the author of this poem had a very particular meaning in mind. I can tell you about it in a minute, but I want to say, and if you know what it is, you're not allowed to say. What kind of stuff would you need to know in order to determine what this means? Brett. Who wrote it? That's a good start. When was it written? Why, well, why was it written? Yep, that's the question. Okay, our fearful trip is done, so where'd they go? What's that about? What, what kind of trip is it? Remember, it's poetry, so it can mean whatever. Don? Who killed the captain? How's the captain dead? Yeah, okay. Was the captain killed, or did he just die? Was it an accident? What if I told you this was, this was a poem about a historical event? No. Do you know the answer? No. Oh, okay. No, it's not, it's not about Lord Nelson dying. It's a good guess, but no. No. But as, as we start to in, insert historical context, it might become more obvious. Okay? Uh, it was written by a guy named Walt Whitman of bridge fame. Right, the Walt Whitman Bridge? Oh. Come on, I'm not even from Philly. And I know that. And this went around over your guys' head. Walt Whitman Bridge. Okay, that actually is not going to help you at all. But the guy's name is Walt Whitman. As the guy who the bridge is named after. Um, Walt Whitman uh, wrote this poem in 1865. Okay, about the time of the Civil War, Civil War was ending, Whitman had been a volunteer nurse during uh, the Civil War for the Union. Uh, he was a devoted supporter of the President, Abraham Lincoln. Does that maybe give you any indication of what this might be about? Walt Whitman wrote this as an ode to Abraham Lincoln after his assassination. The fearful trip being done is the end of the Civil War. The prize we sought is won. The, the Union won. The people all exulting. And so they're, they're, he, he envisions the Union as this ship. I mean, it's a metaphor finally reaching port after this arduous voyage and everybody's celebrating that the ship has arrived, that the war is over, that, that, that everything that they, that they fought for is there. And yet, all of this celebration is, is muted because the captain who led them 
is death. Now, we know that because Whitman actually tells us that that's what this is about. He didn't just write it and tuck it somewhere and then it left us to figure it out. I mean, he, he said, this, this is what this is about. So we have that help. But, but do you see the importance of getting some historical context to understanding a text? See, if, if we don't get some of that stuff, then um, we'll start to say, oh, well, you know, it sounds like he's talking about this, and it's probably this, and, well, and we, we construct these real fanciful interpretations of something. They sound real good in our minds. We convince ourselves that's what it's talking about. And then when we come to find what it's actually about, we're like, oh, that's disappointing. Have you ever done this with Scripture? I, I have. Not recently. I think sometimes the way that we're, that we're taught or that we kind of catch Bible reading, um, we don't learn it well. And so um, in our desperate attempt to get something from the text, because we know that's what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to read the Bible, we're supposed to get something out of the text. And so in order to get something out of the text, we start kind of making things up. Yeah. Sure. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, and you, and you get. Yeah, the, the, the example of, of um, the, uh, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, is not just about the prodigal son. I mean, we call it that, probably says that in the subheading of your Bible, which you remember from last week never to pay attention to, because they're like wrong half the time. It's not the parable of the prodigal son, it's really the parable of the two sons. Yeah, Sherry. Well, in terms of if we're reading the text of Scripture and we're, uh, we're expecting the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts to understand what he's written, um, there is absolutely room for the Holy Spirit to impress an application of the text into your life that might be very different from mine or anybody else, but not meaning. There's one meaning in the text. It's what God determines the meaning is going to be. Now, then that meaning will have a myriad of applications depending on all of our, of our situations. So, and that's, that's the distinction. I had somebody one time in a, in a Bible study uh, tell me um, they were using a certain version of the Bible. I was using a certain version of the Bible. We, we both read the text, and, and um, I suggested that it might mean this, and here's why. Uh, this person uh, 
said, well, I don't think it's what it means because this is what my translation says. I'm like, well, but that's not, I mean, it's, there's, there's one meaning. She's like, well, no, different translations, different meanings. I said, no, that's not how it works. Um, and so we had to have a conversation about where's meaning found. It's not found in what you, what you think it means for you. It's found what did, what did the author mean? And then, once we've determined that, then we can do the work of trying to discern, now, what, what does this mean? Why does this matter for me? Why does this truth revealed in God's word by the Holy Spirit, who wrote the book, so he's not going to tell you it means something different than what it means, because he wrote it. What is that one meaning have to do with my life? Why does it matter for me? All right, for the sake of time, we're going uh, to move on. Um, discovering the historical context. So as we do a, a study of, the book, of a book of the Bible, you, you read through it, you, you get as much as you can out of these different, uh, these different categories, who wrote it, all this. See, see what, what can you gather from just Scripture itself, just that book. Try to stay in that book. Say, I want to suck this dry, get as much as I can out of this to understand, uh, to understand what's going on. But we don't only want to stay there because then we're going to be ignoring uh, especially the rest of God's revelation, which might give us insight into what's going on in that book. So when we want to think through what's the historical context, how do we understand what's happening uh, in, in this text, in the world, the cultures, what's happening to help us understand as we're preparing to go through the book bit by bit, uh, what are things that we need to be keeping in mind? Uh, so, say, so of course, we begin with the Bible, and we start with what, we, what we've just done. We look for clues in the text itself. What do, we, uh, what do we see, for example, in the book of Philippians or in the book of Philemon, as we did some practice of that last week? What do we see uh, in the text? And after that, we, we can move out and say, now, is there other scripture that, that helps us understand what's happening in this text, outside of this book. Um, if you're reading a letter like Philippians, there's a book of the Bible that might be really helpful for you to understand some of the historical context of what's going on. Anybody have any guesses what that might be? Acts. Right, because Acts tells the the story of, at least the second half of Acts, tells the story of Paul and his missionary journeys. Acts 16 tells the story of Paul going to Philippi and starting the church. And what happens when Paul's in Philippi and how he and Silas get thrown in prison and then there's an earthquake and, and uh, the jailer's going to kill himself and, uh, and uh, that they all stuck around and the jailer didn't kill himself and he got converted and now it's interesting because in, in Philippians there are a couple places where Paul talks about uh, where is it? Uh, 
uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29 in Philippians. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw me in, and now here to be in me. So there's some conflict that the Philippians saw Paul undergoing. We read about that in Acts 16. He gets thrown in prison. And then when he he drops the bomb on him and says, I'm actually a Roman citizen, so um, you guys are in trouble. And they they take him out and they beg him to leave the city. Please leave so don't get in trouble. But he was was thrown in prison for for what he was doing in, in Philippi. So, Right there, we have an example of, well, if you're only reading Philippians, you can say, well, the Philippians saw Paul undergoing some kind of conflict, but you can't necessarily say what it is. When you compare it to Acts 16, oh, now we see what's going on there. Well, one thing is read your Bible a lot. (laughs) Are you trying to cheat? Yeah, yeah. so we're going to talk about that in a sec, okay? Um, one place that might be helpful uh, is if your Bible has cross-references. So that's a place you can look, uh, and, uh, and that might direct you to some of those passages that will be helpful for you to understand. So I'm looking at my uh, cross-references now, and where am I, 29... Mine says, am I on the wrong? Experience the same conflict. Oh, no, 30. Um, so it's funny. My, uh, my cross-reference doesn't actually point me there. So I might not. But some of you might have them. Yeah, so we have at least one. So I'm not totally making this up. Um, so, as possible, if you remember that the cross-references are things that the editors of, of these versions of the Bible put in to help you find your way around, they're, they're not inspired. So, there are some times where they'll put in a cross-reference, and I'll go there, and I'm like, I have no idea why you pointed me to this text. This makes no sense. So, as long as you know that those are, the cross-references are not authoritative, just so you know. So, you begin with the, the text of the Bible, you move out. What else, what else does the rest of Scripture say? Another example will be in the Old Testament prophets, when they start saying, uh, so the, be, the beginning of, of uh, some of the prophets, it'll say the, the book of the prophet Isaiah, uh, which he wrote, uh, while so-and-so was king of Israel and so-and-so was king of Judah and so, so, so. so that is kind of a clue for you to say, okay, where else have I heard about those guys, those kings? You might go to 1 Kings or 2 Kings or 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles and say, I want to understand what's going on in, uh, in this time period in Israel's history to understand why Isaiah might be saying what he's saying. A good example of this is Isaiah 6. 
um, the, the famous throne room scene where Isaiah has this vision of God on the throne. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Have you ever heard uh, R.C. Sproul talks about this passage a lot in his book, The Holiness of God, and, uh, which is a wonderful book, and you should all read it. But he, he goes and he, and he says, let's talk about King Uzziah. Why might it be significant that Isaiah says, I, I had this vision when King Uzziah died? You know, it could just be that he's making a historical marker like, this is when it happened. He's just dating it. Is there more significance to it? Uzziah was one of the longest reigning kings. Uh, and, uh, and there was great stability uh, in Judah over that time. And then he died. And the people could have been thinking, oh my, what's going to happen now? Transitions of power were not particularly peaceful. And so when the king dies, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He's seated on the throne. Might that be significant? That after the death of a, of a long-reigning king and the people mourn that Isaiah is comforted by seeing that it's the Lord who's sitting on the throne. You can chew on that one. Uh, so, but that's an example of, it says, the year that King Uzziah died. So maybe I need to go and I need to look at who's King Uzziah. When did he die? What happened after he died? What do I need to understand about this to maybe make sense of what's going on? And then, though I told you last week not to cheat, for your initial survey of a book, as you're thinking through um, what's going on, as, as I prepare to study a book, how can I understand what's happening. I don't want to go in blind, so you do as much as you can with just the text, with the rest of Scripture, uh, and then I give you permission to use good secondary resources, good books. Now, let me warn you, not every book is a good book. I'm going to especially warn you that there's very little for you to find on the internet that is good. If you want places on the internet that are good, I can give them to you. Please don't Google. You're more likely to come up with something bad than good. So here are a couple good resources for you to maybe get a hold of uh, to, to help you as you think through kind of historical context. You have Gordon Fee and, I uh, can't remember his first name, Stuart, uh, how to Read the Bible Book by Book, That's a, that will, takes you through all 66 books of the Bible, gives you background, author, historical context, all that stuff. I would look at it after you do your initial survey to make sure that you haven't come up with something totally whack. Um, Don Carson and Doug Moo. Uh, Don Carson is the Pope of the Evangelical Free Church. It's a joke. We don't have a Pope. It's getting late. Uh, introducing the New Testament. It's a short little one. Scott has the big one. He's cheating. He's cheating big time because he got the bigger one. So that's not, this is the one that they wrote that's, that I use that for my schooling. 
that is not that one. You can get the big one if you want. This one is smaller and, and uh, just a good handy reference. Um, Tremper Longman's inter uh, introducing the Old Testament. Same thing, same series, same format. And then Alexander and a bunch of other guys, um, Desmond Alexander, did the new dictionary on biblical theology. Um, if you uh, are going to come to the class in the fall, we're going to use the new dictionary of biblical theology to talk about biblical theology. Uh, just to warn you in advance. Um, and that one is like any dictionary. You can look up things like Philippi, like the book of Philippians, and there are articles in there about the background and all that kind of stuff. So those are, those are good things to, to get a hold of at some point. All the, uh, these books, stuff, I have links for them online. When the um, audio is posted tomorrow, uh, I hope um, you'll be able to access all that there along with the, the slides. So you don't need to quick copy them down. They'll be, uh, they'll be up there. All right, moving right along. In addition to thinking about the historical context of a book, we also want to try to understand the way that the book is, is organized and fit together. Uh, I did, um, for, uh, for a year or two, I did grading at Cairn uh, for Tom Allen. So Tom paid me to grade papers for him. I shouldn't surprise you. Um, Yeah, no, the students didn't pay me to grade, to grade the papers. But it was interesting. One of the things that I noticed um, is, is papers that I was more prone to give good grades to, uh, I was able to kind of discern like, oh, this makes sense. This person has an organized... It's like they actually thought about what they were writing before they wrote it. Um, papers that are more stream of consciousness, it's kind of like, oh, and another thing. We're going to talk about this now. I mean, I would write comments like, did you, did you think about this? I probably wasn't quite that crass, but like, you probably want to spend a little bit more time thinking through the structure of, of, of your paper as you make an argument. Um, the books of the Bible are not put together haphazardly, especially when we come to places like the epistles. Paul is a very logical thinker, and so he weaves together these arguments in, in, the, in the books, and so that uh, there's, there's a structure to them. Um, and so after we've started to get some background information, the next part of our kind of our big uh, survey for how do we study a book of the Bible is take the whole book and try to break it down into its parts and see how, how, do, how do all these things fit together. And this is an initial survey, so you might change your opinion of, of how things fit together as you go through the study, but this is just kind of to draw a roadmap for you as you go and say, okay, here are the big, uh, kind of the big chunks that make up the book and how I'm thinking they might fit together at this point, though I might, I might end up uh, changing it. So it helps us to understand the, the flow of the whole book. It makes, helps us make some preliminary observations about the themes and the content of the book, and so if if you say, well, there's three major sections to this book, and this one deals with this, and this one deals with this, and this one deals with this, then you start asking questions like, well, how do all these things fit together? Why did he move from this to this to this? Are they three totally separate things? Is there a bigger theme going on? You start to ask those questions, and 
and then you're kind of tucking those away for as you go through the study of the book to say, I want to I think through this more as we, as we study it. Um, remember, it helps us to remember that biblical books are generally not just collections of sayings, Proverbs excluded, but even there, some scholars argue that there's actually a much deeper structure to the way all of that is put together. You know, books, books of the Bible are complete works for which the author has, has a purpose. This is one of the reasons I really don't like v- the verse numbers. It's because it actually kind of lends itself to, to making us think that each verse is its own unit. That it's like, well, this verse means this, and then we move to the next verse, and, and it's totally different, rather than seeing that, no, this is, all, all of this is, is fitting together. It's not just moving um, haphazardly from one thing to the next. Uh, and it helps us place the individual parts of the books in their context to, to aid our interpretation so that we know, like to take example, uh, 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 Philippians, you know, we talked about Philippians 3, and this is where Paul um, talks about his Jewish heritage, and this is who he is, and let me give you all my Jewish credentials and, th- 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 and all this stuff. Well, why Philippians 3? What about that part of the book makes us think, well, this, this is why Paul's doing it here? Or does he just decide, oh, I've completed this part of the book, now I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself. Right? What, what's the purpose? So as we start to break down the book into its parts, we might get a better idea of what's going on uh, there. So the last little bit of time we have, we're gonna, this is a tool um, that I would use uh, at the beginning of a, of a study of a biblical book. Uh, it's called a book chart. This is just an initial way for you to start to try to understand how the pieces of a book fit together. Um, It's a version of outlining a book. Actually, I do it before I do an outline uh, of a book. Um, Again, I'm I'm a visual person, so I like the, uh, I like seeing it fit together. Um, So you start by, as you read through the book, and you probably at this point, you've read through the book a number of times, you start noticing, well, here are places where there seem to be some major divisions. There are certain words that we look for. Um, you know, in Philippians, Philippians 3 begins with the word finally, which is kind of funny because it's halfway through the book. You're like, Paul, you really should save that for the end. But, but that's a word that might say, okay, this is the beginning of a new section. Not just because there's a big three next to it, not just because there's a new subhead, but because of that word. But there's some kind of difference between what he said before and what he's going to say. Now, you start to break up the book into into its major divisions. And then you summarize as best you can kind of what each of those major divisions is talking about, trying to do it in a sentence or a phrase. And this is just, just to help you uh, kind of remember what's going on here. You're not trying to explain everything that's happening there. Just big picture, what's he talking about here? And then you go back and you think through which sections uh, are connected, which sections maybe aren't connected, and there's a, there's a stronger break, uh, and so forth. So I, I'm going to show you uh, an example of, of this. So this is how I would do it. You don't have to do it this way. Along the left side of my paper, I write, as I, as I go through the book and I make 
and I uh, make kind of marks on here's where I think the major divisions are. Um, and, and particularly if you're new at it, it's, it's not wrong to, uh, if you have a, a Bible with paragraphs, to just take a paragraph at a time. And so you, you start, I write the, the verse numbers down the, down the left side, and then next to each one I try to summarize it as, as best I can. I'm not really worried about trying to fit them all together yet. I'm just trying to summarize, well, what does this say? And then I, I start thinking, okay, now, which ones are similar and which ones are different? Which ones seem to fit together and which ones don't? And, oh, what am I doing here? And then I, I try to mark off with a thicker line or a double line or something like that, um, which ones don't fit together, which ones do fit together. And then I go further to the right on my paper, and I say, okay, well, if, if those two sections fit together, then that maybe is, is one kind of unit, so then I want to try to summarize, well, what's he talking about there? And, and the same thing uh, throughout. And then from, from there, I would move to, to actually having an outline of the book so that I kind of had an idea of this is where I think he's going. And it also uh, helps me to think through what are the major sections that I'm going to study one at a time as I go. Because we don't study the whole book at once. We do it piece by piece. All right? So um, we're going to try this briefly. Um, with uh, Philemon. Again, it's pretty, pretty short. So take a couple minutes, read through it, and just try to make some marks on your paper uh, where you think here are the major breaks uh, in the text. This is where we move from one thing to another, one, one idea to another. Um, it's important to remember here that there's not necessarily a right answer. There's no answer key for this. Uh, so um, you're trying to, to think with Paul about how he would have organized and structured his letters. So take a couple minutes and do that, and then I'll, uh, I'll show you my answer, which is not necessarily the right one, but uh, I'll show you what I did with it. Okay, we've got a couple minutes left, so <clears throat> I want to try to wrap it up here. What uh, would you guys come up with? Where, where were there kind of major breaking points in, in the book? So one one to three and four to seven. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then in verse eight he starts talking about Onesimus and he's requesting something of Philemon for that. Yep. And uh, yeah. Okay. The beginning of verse fifteen. Yep. Now with Paul, it sometimes it can. Uh, so, uh, 
Greek grammar is a little bit different than English grammar. Apparently in Greek grammar, there's no such thing as a run-on sentence. <laughs> Paul tends to write really long, elaborate sentences with lots of commas and, and uh, clauses and stuff like that. So uh, verse 15 is the beginning of a new sentence, uh, which uh, that can sometimes give you an indication of where, where there might be a, a break in thought, but yeah. Or there could be other reasons too, which I assume there is. Where else did you guys maybe put breaks? Yes, Scott. Okay. Yeah, so you did eight, 8 to 19 is one big unit. Okay. Yep, and then 20 to 22. Yep. Yep. Sure, and then after verses 23 to 25. Yep. So there's there's not necessarily a, a, a right answer to this, and especially at this point in your study of a book, this is all just preliminary. Um, we're just trying to to get the lay of the land and, and try to give ourselves uh, a head start in understanding how each of the pieces of the book fit together and and where you break. Uh, something might have a, a, an impact on the way that you understand what the author is saying. And so um, and we'll talk about some of those important kind of words that give us an indication that, oh, okay, this is probably something new that's going on in, in subsequent weeks. So I'm going to give you um, my answers. So I did it like this. I said one to three and four to seven. Um, so one to three, Paul greets Philippian and the other recipients because Philippian, Philemon, right, Philemon, uh, and the other recipients. Um, verses four to seven, Paul thanks God for Philemon and prays for him. And we talk about genre later in the course. We'll talk about how these kind of things are actually really common just in letter writing. Um, there's a, a greeting and a salutation, and then there's a, a thanksgiving and a prayer this is very, I mean, you see this in all of Paul's letters, and it's not just because Paul made it up. It's because this is actually kind of the convention of the time. It's like when we write an email, and we put, we, there's a, uh, you know, there's a to and a from, and uh, there's a subject line, and, and then there's, you know, you say hello, and then you have the body, and then you say goodbye, and then you say P.S., and you got a signature at the end. Like, same kind of thing. Um, then uh, I, had, I broke it down into smaller pieces, uh, 8 to 11, 12 to 16, 17 to, to 21, and then the end, 22 to 25, uh, as uh, kind of the, the conclusion. And then what I did is I, I started to think through, well, how are each of these sections related to, to the others? And so I, I drew these lines. So you have the 1 to 3, the greeting, that's kind of its own thing. And then he starts into actually talking to the Philippians, 4 to 7. But then verse 8, and I agree with you, Verse 8, I think, is where it really starts kind of the body of the letters. Like, okay, now this is why I'm writing to you. Let me talk to you about this. And I think that goes from verse 8 to verse 21. And then verses 22 to 25 um, is the, the conclusion. And so then what I do to try to help myself understand the structure of the book more is, and I would say, okay, so um, verses 1 to 3, that's the greeting. And verses 4 to 7, the thanksgiving and prayer. And then Verses 8 to 21, that's one big section. So it's, it's got these three little sections within it, but it, they all kind of fall under the same umbrella. And so that's, that's Paul's appeal regarding Onesimus. 
and then verses 22 to 25, as Paul announces his intention to, to come and bids them farewell. Uh, and so then, uh, but there is kind of a relationship between verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 7. They're all kind of front matter. They're material that occurs before the, the main body. And so then I said, well, okay, those, those two sections kind of are put together in another bigger section. That's the, the introduction. And then there's the body of the letter, and, and this is a really short one, so there's only kind of one main section to that, but in other books it's going to be more. And, and then the, the conclusion. And then I assigned them numbers because I'm OCD and I do want an outline. And so kind of that big introduction, that's Roman numeral one, and the body is Roman numeral two, and conclusion is Roman numeral three, and then within the introduction, there's two sections. There's the greeting, and then there's the thanksgiving and the prayer. And then within the body, there's three sections, and that's uh, 8 to 11 and 12 to 16 and 17 to 21. And then the conclusion, there's, there's one section. And so then I would transfer this to, to an outline that would look something like this. Uh, and this is if I was keeping a notebook as I was studying a, a book of the Bible, I would put this up front with with all the, the um, information I'm, I'm gathering about the author and the recipients and the historical background and stuff like this. And this is all stuff that I would do before I started into to studying the individual passages of the book. So then I would start uh, my study of Philemon with verses 1 to 3 or verses 1 to 7. And then I would move to verses 8 to 11 as a separate study and so forth. So I know that's a lot, um, but guess what? You get to practice with it. Lucky you. Uh, so your homework for uh, two weeks from now, March 6th, does that sound right? Read... Uh, Read in the book, dig deeper. Uh, these two sections, one uh, is talking about author's purpose. The other is talking about the structure of a text. That's going to kind of reinforce some of the stuff that we've talked about tonight. Um, complete pages 37 to 40. So last week you had to do 15 pages. This week it's not, uh, not that many. But um, on page 37 in your workbook, that gives you the information. You will do a little bit of historical background uh, by reading these sections in the book of Acts and the book of uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians to give you uh, some background in Philippians. Um, that's going to be the extent of what you're going to do for this. If you're super interested, I can get you more information about the historical background of, uh, of Philippians. Or you can buy those wonderful books that I recommend and, and, uh, and get it there. And then if uh, you're an overachiever and you've got inductive Bible study and you want to read that, there's the, uh, the pages for that. If you have any questions, I'm happy to stick around and talk to you about them, or you can call me or email me in the next two weeks. I'm two minutes over. Please forgive me. Good night.